Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. All right, one more welcome for Adam. Thank you. OKC Community, good morning. It is such a gift to be present with your church any opportunity that I have. Uh, And I just want to say how much I love you and how awesome it is uh, to see a vision that Tim and Christy shared with Andrea and I in their living room so many years ago. And now every time I come here and I see you, this congregation, I see that vision. I see what God put on the man in's hearts and it brings such joy to me. Uh, I have preached here on multiple occasions, but you know what? This church is growing. Praise God. And uh, some of you I have never had the privilege of meeting, nor do you know uh, who I'm married to or who I'm trying to raise. So here's my family. Uh, This is the Barnett family. Andrea and I have been married almost 17 years. That that honey is still mine. And our oldest is Gracia. She's 15. Ellie is 11. Andre is 10. And Macy is 9. That is the Barnett family. I greet you on behalf of my family as well as the Redeemer Church family in Tulsa, who Andrea and I love very deeply. But OKC community is home away from home for us. And I love your pastors. I love your pastors. I have seen them in the peaks and in the valleys, in the trenches of life and family and ministry, and they are the real deal. Uh, There are many, many times in life and in marriage and family and ministry that I try to model what I do after your pastor. He's such an example to me. So I just love you. I love your friendship. Uh, I know we're still confused about our relationship. He calls me his friend, and I call him my mentor, and someday he'll be okay with that. But your, your leadership, both of you, your leadership is really, truly precious to me, and I love you. So Tim's sermon last week has been messing with me. It is, and I'm not just blowing smoke, it is one of the greatest messages that I have heard in a very long time. If you missed it, you have got to jump online and you've got to go watch the archives. He talked about how we all want to be great at something. We all want to be significant in this life. And even on my drive here this morning from Tulsa, I turned on Christian radio because I still believe in that stuff. And there was Michael W. Smith singing about my place in this world. That's a good song. (laughs) We all want significance, but Tim preached on Luke 22, where we learn that true greatness is actually found in the act of service. Did you hear me today? Is anybody in this church... True greatness is not a throne, but it's a posture of service. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of God first and others second, and me last. And so his sermon inspired me to begin this message today with this question that I hope messes with you for the coming week. Which is greater to you, God's kingdom or my castle? Which is greater? Is it God's kingdom Or is it my castle? See, if I care more about building my own castle, then every good work that I do in this life is all going to be about me. And we live in a culture that supports that mindset. More, more, more about me, me, me. 
But God's kingdom, which by the way, doesn't need you, he doesn't need you to build it. Okay? Uh, I think it's really cute when I meet a young pastor or minister. How are you, you doing? In Great, I'm just building God's kingdom. Building God's kingdom. I'm like, bro, you're not building God's kingdom. God's kingdom is built. And he built it. Now, you can surrender to it, and you can serve it, and you can make a contribution to God's kingdom, but you're not building anything. God's kingdom is already built. But when the reality of God's kingdom settles into our souls, we don't care about our castles anymore. That's when every good work is demonstrated through a lifestyle, as he preached, a lifestyle of obedience, portraying true greatness and significance through service and through humility. So in this final week of this series, Every Good Work, I want to preach about something that I'm passionate about, the widow and the orphan and the poor. Because as God desires to increase his good works through us, I couldn't help but think about the marginalized. God absolutely wants to make things right in this world, and he wants to do it through you. So scripture calls us, it invites us, it commands that we engage in issues of justice to make things right in this world, in creation, in communities, and in relationships. According to James, this is actually the center of true religion. Listen to James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I can't resist sharing the amplified version with you. Do you like the amplified? I can't resist it today. Pure and unblemished religion as it is expressed in, hello, outward acts. You can be pure and religious on the inside all day long. But what about outward acts? In the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit and look after the fatherless and widows in their distress and to keep oneself uncontaminated by the secular world. So the biblical mandate to care for the widow and the orphan did not commence with the New Testament in Deuteronomy 26. After bringing their tithe to the Lord, God's people were to feed the fatherless and the widows. And not crumbs, not leftovers, but according to Deuteronomy 26.12, quantities of food that would be leaving them satisfied. And in Exodus 22, we find a warning not to exploit a widow or an orphan. Look with me at verse 22. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Now, don't miss this. My anger will be aroused. You mess with the widow and you mess with the orphan, you're making God angry. My, angry will, my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Does that get anybody's attention today? See, this issue is not about influencing culture. This is not a social dilemma. This is a biblical mandate. And as Jesus followers and Bible readers, we align our hearts with God's heart and we work to oppose injustice. 
So, as we are called to obediently care for the widow and the orphan, I would like us to examine the two from James 1.27, and then I'll turn my attention to the poor. First, the widow. When James penned this verse, widows were some of society's most helpless members. So in the ancient world, there were no such things as insurance programs, annuities, life insurance, social security payments. And without a husband, a woman would have been very vulnerable, very neglected. In Acts 6.1, I find this crazy. In Acts 6.1, we see that the gospel is advancing. The gospel is spreading. Many people are coming to faith in Jesus and believing this story to be true. Disciples were increasing. The church is growing. The church is flourishing. Yet at the same time, widows were being overlooked when it comes to the distribution of food. So like the prophets throughout history, James sounded the alarm and said, we have to care for the oppressed. I'm going to ask you, have you ever thought about the day that Jesus died and realized that he models this beautifully for us? Because while he was on the cross, moments away from death, who was he concerned about? His mother. Dear woman, he said, here's your son. And he's referring to his beloved disciple, John. To whom he then said, John, here's your mother. Look after one another. The Bible tells us that John took Mary into his home. So in his, listen how tender this is. In his dying moments, Jesus was prioritizing the care of his widowed mother. And we ought to follow his example. Also in James 1.27, we see the call to care for the orphan. The early church was under immense pressure. They had faced Roman persecution, and many people were being put to death. Do you know throughout history, in times of persecution and in times of famine and in times of pandemic, that the gospel was often spreading because people would look at how Christians cared for widows and orphans? All these new babies without a mom and dad, who took them in? Christians. And it advanced the gospel. But there, when James wrote this, the marginalized were hungry and they were starving. And as a result, children were abandoned or orphaned. And furthermore, it was not uncommon at times when a family would have a child and couldn't afford to raise the child, the family would abandon their baby at the temple gate or at the trash dump. The care of the orphan was delegated to the church, not to NGOs, not to nonprofits and 501c3s. Those are all good things, but the, the care for the orphan was delegated first to the church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. Psalm 68, 5 and 6, God is a father to the fatherless. And listen to this. Listen how beautiful this is. He sets the lonely into families. Proverbs 10 and 11, don't exploit orphans. It says God is their defender and he will take up their case against you. 
And if you're anything like me, you want to be on God's side anytime there's a case. Just you and me, everybody else. You want to be on God's side when there's a case? He will take up the case of the orphan if we refuse to care for them. Obviously, I'm passionate about this. You've seen my family photo. A couple different shades of skin. The last 15 years, I've been able to travel to 48 different countries on six different continents and Much like OKC community, Haiti is home away from home. I've been there 25 times. But it was our first international trip as newlyweds. We spent a good portion of the summer in India early in our marriage, like seven months into our marriage. Y'all want to test on your new marriage? Go to India. (laughs) But there we were in a train station in Chandigarh. And a little boy with brown eyes, he was wearing a potato sack. He had hundreds of bugs crawling through his hair. And he walks up to me and he does this. And as two madly in love newlyweds who had no idea what God would do with our story and our family, we shook hands that day with each other and we surrendered to God that we would adopt. We didn't know how many biological children we would have, but it was that little boy in Chandigarh who broke our hearts and led us to a commitment in prayer to adopt. And I know, I know how thankful Andrew and I are for him. That in his struggle, he changed the course of our future and our family. So our hearts were broken. And after we had two wonderful biological daughters, Ellie and Macy, we started the agonizing paperwork pregnancy process called international adoption. We didn't care where we adopted from. We didn't care what culture, what race, what ethnicity. They sent us this form to fill out, and we just wrote, doesn't matter. James 1 just says to defend the orphan, not from a certain region. So we just signed the box. Just, just assign us somebody, you know? So they call and they say, we got a little boy. He's got malaria. He's very sick. He's in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Listen, friends, I was in the DRC in 2009 when our first biological daughter was born. And I remember coming home and telling my wife, I don't ever want to go back to the DRC. Of all the places I've been in the world, I never want to go back to the DRC. So we opened that thing and saw that they assigned us with Andre in the DRC, and Andrea laughed at me. She said, you should have never said that. (laughs) And then she said, matter of fact, you should have never thought it. You don't even have to say it for God to know you're thinking it. What's wrong with you? So we have this little boy, Andre Aseme, and then we find out that he's got a big sister, Gracia Mario Tacombe. And you know what? We looked at each other. We were at Outback Steakhouse. How many of y'all love Outback? Getting the blooming onions, 3,000 calories. And, and we're sitting there, and we get this email about Gracia. And I looked at my wife. I said, do you even want to pray about this? She said, what do you mean? I said, do you want to pray to God, or do you want me to? God, do you want us to adopt two orphans or one? Like, <laughs> I don't want to pray that prayer. God, you idiot. Adam, 100, right? So... So we agreed without praying, truly. 
We prayed about adoption, but we agreed to two instead of one without even praying because the Bible's clear. I'm not going to ask God. Andre has a sister. Do you want us to bring her home too? So we're matched with two kids in the DR Congo. And after concluding all of the paperwork process, off we go. And the president of the DRC had shut down the country and our children could not receive exit letters and they were stuck. They couldn't get out of the country. And we prayed and we signed petitions and we called senators. And at the peak of our hopelessness, we got a call, a phone call, which was also a call from the Lord, but it was on the phone. (laughs) And a current Oklahoma City Thunder player at that time How many of y'all know God loves the Oklahoma City Thunder? (laughs) A current player at the time who has become a friend, put us in touch with a contact there in Kinshasa, and there we were for the adventure of a lifetime with two stuck kids, but now with our friend's connections, somebody that was willing to help us get him out of the country, illegally. So, which I think it was two days before there was an attempted robbery and people were firing guns at our security guard. And I I called two people. I called my dad and Tim Mannon and said, listen, things aren't going so well. But we had to get creative. And we snuck the kids out of a neighboring country. Although we broke the law, I think James 1.27 says, defend the orphan. And so we resolved in our hearts that God would give us a divine free pass that day. (laughs) The point of this part of the sermon is not to inspire all of you to adopt, although that would be really sweet if some of you did. It's really not that big of an issue when you look at global scales. According to Tom Davis in his book, Fields of the Fatherless, if 7% of professing Christians in the world would adopt one orphan every orphanage across the world would shut down. That's all it takes, 7%. And to bring it closer to home, if one family in every church in Oklahoma adopted one child in our foster care system, every foster kid in this state has a home. 7% of international orphans and only one family in one church in the state of Oklahoma would take care of the crisis of children in the foster system. So my point is this, first century or 21st century, or Democratic Republic of Congo or Oklahoma City, the Bible makes it very clear, we are called to serve and defend the least and the last and the little. They are precious to Jesus. Just read Matthew 18 and you'll see how precious they are. And he invites us in. So we're called to look after the widow and defend the orphan. Let me touch on poverty. Globally, almost 700 million live in extreme poverty, surviving on less than $2 a day. 1.3 billion people live in multidimensional poverty. That's 22% of our world. One in five people live in multidimensional poverty, which includes poor health, lack of health care, lack of education, unsafe living standards, limited access to food, poor quality of work, disempowerment, and the threat of violence. See, poverty is not all about money. Children and youth account for two-thirds of the world's poor, and 14,000 of them will starve to death today. 
Wake up, church. Let's bring it closer to home. 11% of households in the United States don't have enough food on the table. 57% of men, 72% of women incarcerated in our country right now were living in poverty before their arrest. And 17% of people living in Oklahoma City live in poverty. It's roughly 175,000 people. So what do we do about this? I think the seriousness of the church's responsibility to the poor is beautifully portrayed in Galatians chapter 2. Paul went to Jerusalem to make sure that the gospel that he was preaching was approved by James and Peter and John. In chapter 2 there, he calls them the pillars of the early church. And when you read their conversation, it sounds a little bit like a first century ministry planning meeting. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Is this okay? So as a result, Peter, James, and John would minister to the Jews, and they agreed that Paul and Barnabas would go and minister to the Gentiles. And the instruction in verse 10 is simply impossible to miss. All they asked. Everybody say that. All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing that I had been eager to do all along. Y'all, we cannot miss the significance of this moment in this conversation. Remembering the poor is explicitly mentioned along with the gospel that they were to preach. I mean, you think about that. Think about that. If, if, if Tim and his leadership team recruited a couple of you to go plant a church in a new community, there are a lot of things that Tim and his leadership could ask you to do as a part of that mission. We want you to preach the gospel. We want you to pray for revival. We want you to heal the sick and cast out demons and resist the devil and stay encouraged and be bold and courageous and plant churches, make disciples, call your mother. There's a lot of different advice that you ought to give to somebody when they go out on this adventure, but listen to their strategy. Preach the gospel, remember the poor. It's amazing how clear the Bible is, isn't it? It's us that complicate it. Just preach the gospel, remember the poor. And it's one thing to remember the poor, but listen to Paul. This is the very thing I've been eager to do. Shame on me on occasion when I say, Lord, I'm willing to serve the poor. I'm willing. Okay? Paul says, I'm eager. I mean, it's like in his bones. He can't wait to serve the poor. Contrary to Paul, I found a survey that asks this question Who is responsible to help the poor? Who's responsible? It pulled thousands of people. 50% of people who participated in this survey said it is the poor's responsibility to serve the poor. That's ridiculous. That's like looking at a drowning person and telling the drowning person, I want you to save that drowning person. It doesn't work. 
25% of people said it is the government's responsibility to care for the poor. And only 7% of people answered, it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility to care for the poor. I'd like to see the other 93% locked in a room with Paul for a minute for debate. 7%. I'm here today to tell you, church, it's our responsibility to serve the poor. And as a result, we stand in solidarity with those living in poverty because we belong to Christ. We belong to each other. So when somebody is hurting in poverty, it ought to hurt us as well. I realize that there could be a little disconnect here. I'm talking about Paul, I'm talking about the early church, talking about this significant global crisis called poverty. I remember when I was in college, I thought I was poor. Anybody relate to that? We all actually have our stories, right, of being poor back in college. My roommate Justin and I, we lived on ramen noodles. Yeah, amen. And how many of y'all know that ramen gets a big upgrade when you crack an egg and drop it in there? It's the real deal. On occasion, Justin and I would have a little spare cash and we would eat chicken nuggets and cream corn and toast. We didn't have a microwave. And we were driving through a neighborhood one day and on trash day, there was a microwave sitting in the yard when we pulled over <laughs> and we took it back to the apartment and we plugged it in and said our prayers and that, that puppy turned on. <laughs> That's the provision of God. <laughs> so we're enjoying all this hot food. And then two years later when he and I parted ways, we didn't know what to do with that microwave, so we took it back to that same yard. <laughs> and we left it there in the yard with a thank you note from two poor college kids that enjoyed many warm meals thanks to their generosity. It's not even generosity, it was trash. <laughs> One man's trash is another man's treasure. So even when I was attending school and struggling to pay bills, you know, I've never truly experienced poverty. I've never lived in poverty. So what do I do in relation to poverty and in relation to all injustices? How can I possibly help? First of all, you're in a tremendous church. After all, your pastor did write a book called Doing Things That Matter. It's a good place to start. And sadly, there are too many injustices in this world to mention, and I agree with you, they are all intimidating, enormous problems. So I'm going to suggest two action steps today for you to consider. And the first is this, pray. Pray this audacious prayer. Lord, where are you calling me to serve? Lord, who are you calling me to prioritize? God, as it would please you, send people into my life and help me to overcome what I think is inconvenient to my budget 
what I think is inconvenient to my schedule, what is inconvenient to my family, and to live self-sacrificially for the purpose of serving someone else. But I'm going to remind you of what your pastor said in his sermon last week. Many, many times there's this casualty of Christians who do all the praying, sometimes decades of praying, that they live in passive disobedience. I find it quite comical when I have people recognize our family as a blended family, and they come up to me and they ask about our story, and then they say, well, we're praying about adopting. You know what I tell them lovingly? You better be praying, God, do you not want us to adopt? Because if you read the Bible, it says to defend the orphan. So how long are you going to pray? How long are you going to pray and take the same prayers to God when God already told you what to do in the Bible? It's time to step out in obedience. It's time to step out and do what Scripture calls us to do. And second, and I admit this is not a very profound conclusion to my sermon. Sorry. But do some research. Again, how long are you going to sit around praying about what to do to serve others in this world when the Bible already tells you to and God has given you this extraordinary theological resource called Google? How long are you going to sit around praying when you could just type in, check this out, check this out, how to serve the poor? And if you still wonder after a search, there's a drop-down menu of what other people, serve the poor and needy, how to feed the poor, how to support the poor. Just Google, guys. God's given us all these resources at our fingertips. And there are so many ways we can get active, not be passively disobedient, but to be actively engaged in mission in this world to the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the poor. And I don't know about the bottom right. I'm feeling lucky. Can y'all see that? I don't know what that means. <laughs> Conduct your own research to see how you can step out and partner with God in mission to this world. Every good work that you read about in Scripture is so often about the marginalized. It's so often about those who need somebody's help to come along. So start to research how you can help others around you and around this world. I'll finish with this. Last week, Tim put up this image and talked about your life tank. And he did bring up this great tragedy of people who are living but lacking life. People who are living but they're not fully alive. And so I'm here today and I'm willing to bet that when you serve and prioritize the widow and the orphan and the poor, Jesus said, whatever you do for them, you do for me. And that, my friends, is what makes life meaningful, significant, and so full. Would you bow your heads? I'm going to pray for us, and when I'm finished praying, a prayer team will be available down front. If you want prayer today, somebody to pray over you, feel free to come out of your seat.
and come down to the front. God, we come to you today to confess to you that we don't want to build our own castles. On that great day that we meet you face to face, we don't want to look at you and say, God, look, look at my castle. God, look what I've built for me. But as we consider every good work that you do in us and through us, we surrender to you and we yield to you and we invite you to do those good works for the good of our neighbor, for the good of the widow, for the good of the orphan, the fatherless, for the good of the poor, so that we might not be so concerned with our own castle anymore, but instead be in full submission and full cooperation with your kingdom, which is already established. Oh, but God, we want to make a contribution. So use us, Father. Use us, we pray through Christ. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.